We've been in a series for a few months now, working our way through 2 Corinthians. We find ourselves in the latter part of chapter 10. And I've entitled my message, Is Your Boast in the Lord? I don't know if you're familiar with the term that's referred to as humble bragging. It's actually a term, humble bragging. It sounds like an oxymoron, I know. Humble and yet bragging, you know, kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. But it's a phenomenon in America. Let me give you a couple of examples, maybe the best way to explain it. Let's say someone's at a job interview and the boss is saying, well, what is, what is your greatest weakness? And the individual replies, well, I'm a perfectionist. I can't leave until the job is perfect. That's an example of humble bragging. Or a woman who's complaining to her friend, I'm so tired of always being mistaken for a model. You know, that's humble bragging. You know, it's, I'm sure that's happened to a number of the ladies here, but that's the idea. The idea is pretending that you're offended by something, but you're really bragging and, and boasting on your perfections, okay? A matter of fact, believe it or not, there are plenty of online instructions on this topic of humble bragging, such as, and I'll just read a couple, how to own your success without sounding narcissistic. In other words, how successful I am, but not really sounding like I'm really into myself. Or here's another one, how to post without seeming to boast, okay? So a lot of people put their stuff up online. It looks like you have perfect life, perfect family. You know, everything's perfect. How to post without seeming to boast. Well, that has connection with what we're dealing with here today. Paul uses the Greek word boast or glory. Same Greek word translated into the English two different ways. He uses the Greek word for boast or glory 20 times in chapters 10 through 13. But Paul is not bragging about himself like modern boasting, modern bragging does or humble bragging does. Paul, as it says, gloried in Jesus Christ. He uses that phrase several times in the New Testament. Romans 5.11, Galatians 6.14, Philippians 3.3. So Paul is not into himself. He's not bragging about himself or even his achievements. And he certainly would have had something to boast about when it comes to achievements. No, in these chapters, Paul is not defending himself. He's defending his apostolic authority. And we just read chapter 10. It seems like, what does this have to do with my life almost? But Paul is dealing with a problem in the church. As you well know, Corinth, the church at Corinth, was his problem child we would say. I'm glad. I think we're all glad because he deals with so many topics from divorce and adultery and lawsuits and divisions and how to observe communion and how to do it right and how to do it wrong, etc. A number of problems are dealt with because of he had a problem church. But Paul had a group of people at the church at Corinth who were rejecting his apostolic authority and even the message. So Paul had to deal with that. And we're in that section of Scripture. And when Paul did boast, he limited himself to the ministry that God had given him. Verse 13 points that out. He boasted about the ministry that God had given to him, 
but he emphasized his sufferings, not his successes. When Paul bragged, he bragged about what he had suffered for the message of the gospel. When Paul boasted, he talked about all that he had been through for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's how he boasted, not in himself, not in his achievement. I'm asking this morning, is your boast, is your boast in the Lord? That's the only thing that is legitimate to really boast about. As I've studied this passage and tried to organize my thoughts, I've done it really around a couple of questions that I think Paul is answering. That as you read this passage, he's, he's really explaining his boast in the Lord. And the first one is found in verses 7 through 11. How do we utilize spiritual authority? We've been given authority. Paul said, I've been given authority. How do I utilize this authority that's been given unto me? First, we admit that divine blessing is essential. That's what Paul is saying. Back chapter 10, start reading again at verse 7. Paul says, do you look at things according to the outward appearances? If so, you're making a mistake. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is in Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is in Christ, so also are we Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more abundantly about our authority, which the Lord gave us for the edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you with my letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in our letters when we are absent, such will we also be indeed when we are present. The first thing that I guess I would glean from this text is, Paul is saying we admit that divine blessing is essential. It's not personal gifts. It's not human ability. It's the blessing of God. So Paul was in an awkward position. Here he's been given this apostolic authority to plant churches. And Paul did. He traveled the Mediterranean world planting churches. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, as you well know, just as Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Peter's ministry primarily was in Jerusalem. Maybe later he might have went to Rome, we're not really sure, or to Babylon, but Peter's ministry was to the Jews. Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles, and so he traveled to all the Gentile territories around the Mediterranean world. God had given him that authority, but he never wanted to appear to be authoritative or to be arrogant about this authority. It was God-given. God called him to do this, but he didn't want to come across in a braggadocio way or being arrogant about this special authority that he had from God. He humbly appealed to the church at Corinth, especially the recalcitrant individuals that were opposed to Paul's authority. He was appealing to them particularly in this passage. And his patience was wearing thin. That's why he says a couple of times in this text, in this chapter, I'm appealing to you in love, I'm appealing to you in gentleness, but when I come, when I come this next time, if you won't submit to authority, the authority of God, then I'll have to deal harshly with you. And I will have to put out of the church those that are following the Judaizers and rejecting the true message of the gospel. 
What does he say in verse 7? Do you look at things in outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, I am also. Well, those of us who are Christ, Paul is really saying the Judaizers bragged about their letters of recommendation. They bragged about their credentials. They bragged about the authority that they had. They were really like the Gentiles. He says the only thing we, any of us have to brag about is that we're in Christ, that we belong to the Lord. What really counts, he says in verse 7, is being in Christ. It was a difficult lesson for Christ's own disciples to learn that in the kingdom of God, position and power were not necessarily evidence of spiritual blessing. You think of in our world today, there are people that are in positions of power and authority, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the blessing of God is upon them. And Paul is pointing that out. These Judaizers were acting the same way the Gentiles like to lord it over others. And Jesus said that to his disciples. Paul is pointing that out to the church at Corinth, that we're not to follow the pattern of the Gentile. We're not to have the Gentile mentality and try to lord it over others. That's not how God's kingdom works. That's not how God's authority structure works. We don't lord it over others. He says in Matthew 20, 25, Jesus does. So some of the Corinthians were not discerning enough to recognize that the Judaizers practice the same thing that the Gentiles practiced in contrast to Paul's meekness and Paul's humility. But at some point, if they didn't accept his authority and the true message of the gospel and reject the Judaizers, the legalists, that Paul would have to then deal with them harshly. Paul was not going to boast about his authority. He was just going to do his responsibilities. And really, that, that should characterize, to some degree, the Christian life. We don't go boasting about our authority or our accomplishments. We just fulfill our responsibility. We kind of keep our head down and do our duty. One of the things that Paul is saying here. Matter of fact, Paul is pointing out to them if they doubted his apostolic authority and thought that he was really a religious huckster, which they claimed that he probably was, some of them were claiming that, then they were an illegitimate church because Paul had won them to Christ. And if they rejected his authority, then they weren't in Christ and they were illegitimate as a church and as believers. So we have to we have to admit divine blessing is essential. It's the most important part of living the Christian life, is getting under the blessing of God. If you have good health today, if you have financial prosperity today, if you have a solid family that seems to be following the Lord, you can't step back and say, it's because of me. Because of my wisdom or because of my example or because of any of the things that I've done, we have to step back and say, it's because of God. Divine blessing is essential and a truly humble person really recognizes it's the work of God. Yes, we contribute. Yes, we do our part, but it's God that does it. So we admit divine blessing is essential. Second, we accept human endowments mean little. 
Our human endowments really mean little to the cause of Christ. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be all that we can be or should be. But what does he say here in verse 7 again? They were judging by outward appearances. Last week, I read to you a section from the book Paul and Thecla, which comes from the second century, a little over 100 years after Paul died, that described Paul as a very short, bald man with a unibrow, a fuzzy eyebrow that met in the middle with bow legs and spoke in a monotone. Paul recognized that he wasn't particularly God's gift to gentlemen's quarterly or to women in general. He he wasn't that good to look at. He admitted that. And the Corinthians, being a Greek city, they judged a person by their oratory and by their looks and by their authority that they had. And Paul says, I'm not coming to you on those basis. That's not the basis that I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you on the power of God and the message of the gospel is what Paul says. So don't judge by outward appearances. He says and he admits his appearance was weak and his speech in verse 10 was unimpressive. But he had brought them to faith. And what does he say? He continued to build them up, not to tear them down. Look at verse 8. For even if I should boast somewhat about our authority, which God gave us for your edification and not for your destruction, Paul says, I'm writing to you to build you up for your edification. That's the word edification means, to build up. I'm trying to build you up, not tear you down. You may think my letters are hard. You may think I'm coming across kind of mean-spirited. I'm not. I'm trying to correct the problem. To build you up is what he's saying. You know, how an individual uses their position of authority really is a very good indication of their spiritual maturity. How you use your position of authority, and we all have some authority. Maybe it's in the home, maybe it's in the church, maybe it's at work, maybe it's in some other context. But how you exercise your position of authority is really an indication of your walk with God, your spiritual maturity. If you try to lord it over people, if you try to impress people, you try to boast to people, probably a mark of insecurity. We humbly approach people and appeal to people. And Paul is pointing that out. And they said, well, that's inconsistent. Look at verse 11. Let such a person consider this, that whether what we are in word, in our letters, when we're absent, so shall we be when we are present with you in person. They were saying, Paul, you write these strong worded letters, but when we meet with you, you're weak and your speech is contemptible. And, you know, your letters are, are weighty and heavy and got gravitas, but in person, you're kind of a lightweight. Paul says, no, I've been appealing to you in love I've been trying to approach you humbly, but, if, but my patience is wearing thin. God's patience is wearing thin. And the next time I come to you, if you're not repentant, you'll see the other side of Paul. He was not being inconsistent. He was measured and patient with the rebels in the church. That graciousness would run out. And he mentions that. Look at chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. He says, I have told you before and for." 
and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent as I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. And he doesn't finish the sentence. The idea is I will not spare you. You'll face the wrath of God. You've heard me say, a person's potential, a man's potential, a person's potential lies not in his ability nor in his opportunity, but in his humility before God. That's kind of the idea right here. Because it's easy for us to say, well, Sure, if I had his or her ability, then I maybe could have done something. Or if I had his or her opportunities, a different family or different education or whatever it might be, if I had their ability or their opportunity, but God says no, it isn't ability or opportunities, it is your humility before God that matters. That's the person that God uses. Paul is underscoring that. So, the first verses, I'm putting it in a question. How do we utilize our spiritual authority with meekness, with humility, with understanding that the blessing of God is everything, not my human endowments? Second question, verses 12 through 18. How do we measure a spiritual ministry? And that's a legitimate question. Paul is saying you're judging by outward appearances. You're not, you, you're not using the right yardstick. You're not evaluating ministry properly. The work of the Lord is not like a commercial business. And those of us in ministry and, and those of us who are involved in church work need to remind ourselves this is not a commercial enterprise. You know, we're, we're not producing iPhones, we're not cranking out Chevrolets. You know, we're, we're not selling pizzas or something else. It's not a commercial enterprise. So how do we evaluate spiritual success? If it's not by product necessarily or how much product you're selling or whatever, how do you, how do you, how do you evaluate successful ministry? I believe that Paul deals with that right here in this passage. I often say we don't count nickels and noses. In other words, you don't judge the success of a ministry by how many dollars come in or noses, how many, how many people are in the pews. That's, that's not how you want to measure a ministry. Those are not insignificant. They're not unimportant, but that's not the ultimate test we see in the Word of God, not nickels and noses. Measuring, what does he say here? Look at verse 12. For we dare not, don't let this happen, what he says in verse 12. Don't let this happen. We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves amongst themselves are not wise. In other words, we don't look out in the parking lot and say we got more cars in the parking lot than the church down the street. Or offerings are bigger than the church down the street. For those who compare themselves amongst themselves are not wise. They're not evaluating what God's yardstick is really what it's saying. Our standard of measurement 
is not other men or even other ministries. It is God and his word is what the Bible tells us, not just here, but over and over. That's how ultimately we're judged as individuals as well as a ministry. The Pharisee, remember he proudly prayed and his prayer went no farther than the ceiling. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector, he opens his eyes and points to Luke chapter 18, verse 11. So even in his prayer, he's comparing himself and he's commending himself to God and saying, God, I'm better than most. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. We're not in a class. We don't, we don't, we don't measure ourselves by other classes of people. We, we hold up the word of God, the prism of the word of God, and say, how am I doing according to God's instruction, God's commands? That's the measurement that God wants us to use. How am I conforming to the image of Jesus Christ? Or in our case, the church. Is our church conforming to what a church is, is prescribed in Scripture? So, I think this text suggests two things that Paul points out. Uh, in verses 12 through 16, how do we measure a spiritual ministry? By faithfulness to our calling. In verses 7 and 18, by diligence to God's glory. That's how you measure a ministry. By faithfulness to God, to our calling, and by diligence to God's glory. Let's look at those verses again, 12 through 16. We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, always bragging, putting themselves forward, but they measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves amongst themselves are not wise. We, however, in contrast to what he's just said, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere of which God has appointed us. God, he says, has given me a specific sphere of duty, a specific realm of responsibility. We can apply that to Paul. We can apply that to ourselves. We can apply it to the church, okay, which God has appointed as a sphere which is especially including you. He was the apostle of the Gentiles that took him all the way to Greece, to Corinth. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is of other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel to the regions beyond you. As you help us, we'll go beyond you, uh, to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's sphere or of accomplishment. Or as it says in the old King James, build upon another man's foundation. So, first he mentions by faithfulness to our calling. We, like Paul, need to labor where God has called us. That's what he says in verse 14a. That's what he says in verse 16a. We are not overextending ourselves. Uh, this is our sphere of influence, verse 16, to preach in the regions beyond you. That's where God is calling me. Paul, Paul is saying, uh, I, I'm laboring where God has called me. Paul was a pioneer preacher. Okay, we know that. 
He went in territories that had never heard of Jesus Christ. They were still in paganism. And Paul says, that's where God has called me. I'm the apostle to the Gentile. And he did not want to build upon another man's foundation. So that was unique to Paul. In other words, we could say Paul stayed in his lane. He, he, he stayed, in, stayed in his assigned field of service. Sometimes we get jealous. Uh, sometimes we get envious of, of other people and how God seems to be using them. Matter of fact, sometimes the most discouraging thing for a preacher to go to is a preacher's meeting. Because they highlight the preachers that, that seem to have unusual blessing upon their church and things are just busting out at the seams and, and God is using them in a great way and you kind of walk away saying, well, that doesn't seem to be happening where I'm serving. And the reality is God has given us an assigned place of ministry, both as preachers and as a church, but us as individuals. And sometimes the, it looks greener on the other side of the fence. It looks so much better over there. And people hop around because they become dissatisfied. I like what Irma Bombeck said, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, but then you get over there, you realize it's above the septic tank. <laughs> Uh, not so not so attractive, okay? And Paul is saying, I, I labored in the area that God called me to, and that involved you Corinthians. That's where God had called me. One of my stops. Paul stayed in his lane. He 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 stayed in his field of service, and it takes faithfulness, it takes commitment to do that. To stay where God has planted us. Paul, Paul points out that his sphere of influence or his field of service included Corinth, verses 13 and 14. And if you read what he's saying here, frankly, he says in these verses, uh, for not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not overextend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel, not boasting of things beyond measure. That is, of another man's labor, that as your faith increase, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in your sphere and to preach the gospel in regions beyond you. Paul is saying, I'm an I'm a, I'm a apostle to the Gentiles. That involved the city of Corinth. And frankly, if you read between the lines, Paul is saying, I want to go beyond that, and I will. But if you hadn't been such a problem to me, if I hadn't spent so much time with you fixing the problems there, I would have been able to move on. I would have been in France by now or Gaul by now or Spain by now or regions beyond you, but I got I to gotta deal with the problems right here. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I hope that they'll get straightened out and you'll help me go beyond you. And eventually Paul did. So they required some time. But Paul planned on going beyond them, he says in verse 16. You know, a big part of success in life is discovering our gifts and abilities and then developing them to their full potential and then deploying them, deploying ourselves with humility and energy. That's a big part of success in life. You've heard me say, success is finding, following, and fulfilling the will of God. 
And that's a little bit different for each one of us. But success is finding, following, fulfilling the will of God. It may be in the Air Force Academy. That may be as a police officer. That may be as a pastor or a missionary or as a business person. It's finding, following, fulfilling the will of God. But that starts with us discovering our gifts and abilities. God, what have you gifted me with? What abilities do I have? I want to develop them to their full potential. And then I want to deploy them with all of my energy and with your blessing. I want to take my gifts and my abilities and where you've placed me and utilize them for your glory. That's the definition of success. For a Christian, there's, there's always room in the kingdom of God for one more servant. We have to have the mentality that I got to be over and I got to be an authority and I got to be an expert all the time or whatever and, and, and lord it over other people. Chances are you're going to serve in the kingdom of God. But there's always room for one more servant in the kingdom of God. So I guess I would ask you, are you where God wants you doing what God wants you to be doing? That's a very practical application of this text of Scripture. Are you where God wants you to be doing what God wants you to do with your gifts and your abilities? If not, step up. Step up. It's the will of God for you. So verses 12 through 16, how do we measure a spiritual ministry? By faithfulness to our calling. I want to be faithful to my calling. I'm suspecting you want to be faithful to your calling. Second, verses 17 and 18, by diligence to God's glory. What does he say here in these last two verses? But he who glories, he who boasts is the word. He who brags, we could say in modern parlance, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For it's not he who commends himself. It's not the guy who puts himself forward and, and writes his own accolades and believes his own press reports. For it's not he who commends himself that, that gets the stamp of approval, but he whom the Lord commends. It's the person that has God's commendation is what's really important, by diligence to God's glory. Paul is saying, my boast is in the Lord. By the way, this is a quote, as you can probably see in your study Bible, from Jeremiah 9.24. My boast is in the Lord. In other words, we must labor with the right motives because God sees our heart. And ultimately, at the judgment seat of Christ, that's all going to be panned out. That's all going to be sifted out. And what we did for selfish, vain glory is burned up. And what we did for God's glory is something that he fashions into a crown for us. So we got to make sure that we're, that we're serving the Lord, yes, but serving the Lord for the right motives, where he's places with our gifts and ability, and doing it for God's glory. That's something I think we have to evaluate constantly because self gets in the way. Pride gets in the way. Human endowments and desires get in the way. And we have to say, God, am I really doing this for your glory or because it's my duty or because I want people to notice my faithfulness or whatever? 
the only commendation he says here in this verse, the only commendation that counts is the Lord's commendation on judgment day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the only commendation that really counts. In our philosophy of ministry here at the church, I've written down these things. It's exactly, I think, what Paul is saying here, or at least an outworking of this text of Scripture. Number one, the guide of our ministry is the Bible, not human wisdom. It's not what works, it's what God says is that we want to do. You've heard me say, the problem with pragmatism is it works, at least on the short end. It works for a while, but it doesn't necessarily work over the long term because it doesn't have God's blessing about it. It's just pragmatic. So uh, our philosophy of ministry is the guide for our ministry is the Bible, not human wisdom, not what others are saying. This works. This is the way to build a church or draw a crowd or whatever. That's manipulation. Number two, the focus of our ministry is developing people, not programs. First Thessalonians 2.8. We're about people, not so much programs. Yeah, you got to have some programs. You got to have a children's program. You got to have a choir. You got you to have some program. But it's really to facilitate building people, reaching and teaching and building people. So our focus of, of the ministry is developing people. People. So that's why discipleship is so important because that's how we develop people. And we can do that from the pulpit. We can do it from the Sunday school classroom. We can do it from home prayer groups. We can do it in small groups of all kinds. We can do it one-on-one or two-on-two. But the focus of our ministry is building people, not programs. Number three, the goal of our ministry is to produce mature Christians not simply converts. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. So we want to produce mature Christian, people that know the Scriptures, people that live the Scriptures, people that are, that are influencing the, their sphere, where they move, because they're mature, they're grown up. Not just gathering a crowd that comes for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning and they're converts and they really don't ever mature past that. Well, that's not our goal here. Our goal is not just to have numbers of converts. Yes, we want converts, but that's not the end goal. That's the first step. And fourth, the prayer of our ministry is spiritual reproduction, not spiritual addition. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the words that thou hast heard of me, he says to Timothy, commit thou to faithful men who will be able to commit to others also. That's spiritual reproduction. That's four generations in that verse. So it's not just spiritual addition. Okay, we voted in some more members. We want to do that. We do that pretty regularly, every three or four months. But that's not the end goal. It's not just spiritual addition. We want those people to become spiritually reproductive. And a young couple that gets married, if they can't have children, we say something's wrong. They can't reproduce. What's what's the problem? Same way in a church and same way with individuals. We want people to be reproducing, bringing others to Christ and discipling them and helping them grow. That's our prayer. That's our philosophy of ministry. 
Has God given you a measure of spiritual influence and authority? I can answer that for you. Yes, he has. God has given every one of us here a measure of spiritual influence, a measure of spiritual authority. Then I would say to you, as Paul says, then fulfill it with humble dedication. Fulfill it with humble dedication. Are you using the correct yardstick to evaluate ministry? It's not how many people you lord it over, it's how many people you can serve. Make sure it's done with faithfulness to God's glory. That's the end game. That's the telos, the, the goal line, is to do it for God's glory, to receive his commendation, Paul says. Let's pray together. Father, uh, this passage of Scripture, we have to ponder it to really squeeze out of it what Paul is saying to these recalcitrant, a small minority of rebellious believers at the church at Corinth. And they were measuring ministry and they were measuring success by using the wrong yardstick, by using this world's yardstick instead of God's word's yardstick. Help us, help us, Lord, because we can easily fall prey to that kind of mentality, that kind of thinking. But we don't want to. We want to humbly, with a servant's spirit, appeal to people about the truth of the word of God, bringing them into the kingdom and then discipling them, helping them grow and become reproducers themselves, just as someone did for us. So may we never give up on that, even if we only have a handful of people that we've really brought to maturity, or family members and some dear friends or neighbors, even if we only have a handful of them that have been saved and grown to maturity, it's success in your eyes. But help us to be hard after it. We would pray. Help any that might be here today that have visited the service, maybe because of the children's program today, the children's choir. And if they do not know you as Savior, our prayer is that today would be the day that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ and to know him aright, not just as a babe in Bethlehem, but the Savior and the Lord who paid for their sins on the cross and waits for them to come in repentance and in faith to him. I pray that they would trust you. Help us, Lord, to live for you. Help us to, to glorify you with our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.